Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles, your favorite true crime podcast. I am Donnie, and with me is a man whose latest retirement plan is a swear jar. It's Dale. Yeah, I'm telling you, man, that thing be running over. Yeah, he's got it going on with the swear jar. <laughs> Survival in quarters alone. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. What's, hey, going, what's going on, dude? Oh, doing all right, man. Still still fighting this damn cold. It's going around, ain't it? I'm telling you, I feel pretty good. I just can't talk. Well, which is a good thing for a lot of people, I guess. Well, I think your wife's enjoying it, right? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> she loves it. <laughs> man, it's t- 2023. Here we are, man. Ain't this something? Yeah. Rolling right on. We hope everybody had a good holiday, a good New Year's. Yeah, we get all past that and let's ready to kick some asses. Here, yeah, we're gonna, we got some things lined up, some cool stuff. I'm so excited. Yeah, I am too. I'm ready to get back in the studio and do some recording and get some true crime stories out for everybody yeah i think we got a lot of big stuff coming up this year and there's a lot of stuff we can't talk about yet but it's coming and it's gonna be good good yeah. good stuff people i think people are going to enjoy it i do too yeah I, I, I definitely will yeah i know i will too all right you got any good shout outs for us oh yeah man we got a few this is we got some five-star heroes in the house today five star, five star. yeah look at that first of all i would like to say a uh, big five-star hero thanks so much for giving us a five-star review on your apple podcast miss uh Haley russ she simply says i'm addicted Addicted. Can't beat that, can you? No, that's well, pretty much can. says it all right there. That's right. Yeah. Then we got another one from, uh, hmm, let me see, MYAK92. And it is uh, one of my favorites. Marie here. I love those dudes. Love listening to them between working at home and doing stuff around the house. They sound like they're just having a normal conversation while they're cracking up in a beer. Well, that's kind of usually what, that's her gimmick. That's pretty much it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they cover the cases in detail so well in a respectful manner uh, to the families and the victims. And uh, I love you guys. So we love you back. Thank you so much. Yes, we do. And also got one from the hunting goddess says uh love these guys hands down the most awesome podcast true crime sign me up and uh signed is angie from uh crescent moon soaps and uh i'd like to give them a shout out too because uh i ran into them they actually have a shop in valley hills mall so if you're local in uh you know to uh to us or semi-local up in hickory north carolina the valley hills mall is a, it's a place called uh Crescent Moon Soaps, and they have like soaps and beard oil and bath oils and crystals and all kind of other healing stones and that kind of stuff. So it's a very cool store, very cool people, and uh, they support us, so please support him if you can. That's it. Yeah, so we really appreciate you guys. Thanks so much. Big shout out to them guys. Yeah, and uh, they uh, helped me out a good bit with the Christmas stuff this year, so my girls really dig the store. All right. And if anybody wants to be like those fine folks that Dale just mentioned, go on to Apple Podcast and click that five-star and write a review. You can be a five-star hero, too. Yeah. That's right. And we'll get you a. <laughs> and we will give you a big old shout out. That's right. With the electronic clapping. Yeah, but it won't shut up. Yeah. We'll smash it with a hammer. You smack it with a hammer. <laughs> when we go video, I'm going to smash it with a hammer. Yeah, we gonna, we got some videos we're going to do, so we're letting it out of the bag. It's some things we got planned. So. Yeah, we're going to get some stuff going, man. It's going to be fun. I, can't wait. I cannot wait. I have to, have to take a shower and stuff. Man. And we're going to involve some people that don't even know they're going to be involved yet. That's right. Yep. Just lots of surprises. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so some of you people listening, you might get a call from us. That's right. Whether you want it or not. Yep. And we'll just come beat the door down if you don't answer, so you might as well answer. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we're going to get into our episode, dude. All right, man. I'm ready. Let's go for yeah. uh, choke myself out here. Yeah, we got uh, a celebrity death that we're talking about this week. Yeah, this is one we've talked about for a long time, and it uh, seems like right now is the time to do it. Yeah. Well, the last celebrity we did was uh, Alfalfa. Alfalfa, yeah, Carl Switzer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're doing another celebrity death. 
And yeah, like I said, this one I've been intrigued about for a long time. Uh, I grew up watching this guy on TV. Was enamored by him. I loved his show. Mm -hmm. He was just just amazing. It's a little more mysterious than Alfalfa one. This is the death of Bob Crane, who played Colonel Robert Hogan on Hogan's Heroes. This was a great show. It was one of my favorites growing up. I used to love it. I did too. But later later on, I found out, you know, him passing away and his murder, and I was just intrigued by it. So, you remember seeing it on the news when you... Oh, yeah. Yeah, when all the stuff was coming out, it was like really wild. Yeah. It was like, let's see, it was pretty young still then, but still remember coming on and knowing it was a big deal, like what was going on with this guy. Yep. Because I really did dig, because, you know, the show, I, I didn't see it when it was on uh regular run but on syndication you just come on all the time yeah just love it yeah that's great well we're talking about bob crane today already just a little bit of background on bob crane he was born robert edward crane and he was born in waterbury connecticut on july 13th of 1928 hmm. and by his early teen years dale he was uh experiencing some musical talent yeah he was um becoming a drummer yeah, he went to a, a fair or a, some kind of thing like where he got to see this guy that was a jazz drummer just tearing it up mm-hmm. and uh, really became enamored with it and wanted to learn drumming. I think even thought about maybe being the next Buddy Rich, but Buddy wasn't the one who really set him off at the beginning. It was just this random guy who come come across at a fair, which yeah. is kind of cool. Yeah, exactly. But Bob was pretty good at drumming. Yeah. Yeah. And to be like Buddy Rich, if he wanted to be like Buddy Rich, Buddy Rich was the best. I mean, Especially if he was going to be a jazz drummer, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and just a little side note, Bob Crane played the drums in the Hogan's Heroes theme song. But at the age of 16, Bob began drumming for the Kinetic Symphony Orchestra. Hmm. But he was let go after two years. I guess him being in his teens, he got let go for clowning around and not, I guess, taking it serious. Yeah. Well, I get that. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Especially, you know, knowing how he is, he's cut up and a common guy wanted to entertain people, so he was probably having a big time with it. Mm-hmm. Now, Bob graduated from high school in Stamford High School in 1946, and then in 1948, he enlisted for two years in the Connecticut Army National Guard and was honorably discharged in 1950. And the previous year, he married his high school sweetheart, Ann Terzan, and they had three children, a son, Robert David, a daughter, Deborah Ann, and another daughter, Karen Leslie. Bob, he began a radio career on WLEA in Hornell, New York. And then he was at WBIS in Bristol, Connecticut. And then at WICC in Bridgeport, as well as Boston's WEEI. And he had a lot of success in radio, man. Yeah, he did a real good job. Yeah, he did. And in fact, so good that he was heard by a big radio station in Los Angeles, California at uh, KNX. And they made him an offer that he couldn't refuse. Mm -hmm. And they packed up the family and moved to Los Angeles in 1956. So, yeah, he got hired in Los Angeles at WKNX, where he was known as the king 
of Los Angeles Airwaves. Yeah, it was a big deal. It was a very big deal. You know, he said even having such guests on stuff on the show as uh, Marilyn Monroe, uh, Frank Sinatra, and Bob Hope, among yeah. many, many others. Yeah, so that was a big time from a guy coming from the Northeast and you know, little radio stations. Right. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's like, you know, the jump don't get much bigger. Now, his show was filled with uh, like his sly wit, and he often played the drums on there. And, and like I said, like Dale said, he had movie stars on there and mm-hmm. just – Anybody and everybody, they were wanting to be on his show. Yeah, he pretty much just took over. Mm-hmm, but Bob, he hit it real big. He know? did. But Bob had a little bit higher ambition, and he was wanting to pursue some acting opportunities. Right. And at one point, he even subbed for Johnny Carson on the TV show, Who Do You Trust? Right. So that was, man, he was really moving up. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, and, and said that he even used, you know, his radio show to kind of, work his way, you know, in, you know, one time when uh, Carl Reiner had appeared on his radio show, he uh, basically talked him into giving him a guest appearance on the Dick Van Dyke show. Yeah. So once he got that, was getting his foot in his door, and that's when it started going away from there. Mm-hmm. But Bob even, um, he turned down the chance to be Johnny Carson's replacement on Who Do You Trust? Yeah. Yeah, he wanted something better. Yeah. And Bob even acted on shows like The Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and General Electric Theater. That's pretty cool. I remember General Electric Theater. And like Dale said, Carl Reiner gave him a shot on the, the Dick Van Dyke Show in 1961. Yeah, pretty cool. And this is where he was spotted by Donna Reed, mm-hmm. who eventually cast him in the recurring role as a neighbor, Dr. Dave Kelsey. Yes. And this was in 1963 to 1965. Yeah, when he first went on there, I think they automatically gave him like seven appearances. And then if he wanted to come back, or if, uh, if Ms. Reed was to uh, renew her show the next year, his contract said, stated that he would appear in every episode the following year. That's moving on up. Yeah. So, I mean, everybody's loving him. Yeah. Now, in 1965, Bob was offered the starring role in a television comedy pilot about Allied prisoners in a German POW camp called Hogan's Heroes. Well, you know, when he first offered him, he turned it down. Yeah. Because he told him he wanted to be a comedy actor. Yeah. He didn't want nothing serious. He didn't want to be in this, not what I want to do. And they're like, no, you don't understand. Sure, it's about Nazis in World War II, but it's a comedy. And they're like, wait a damn minute. Yeah. Because, you know, that, those two things probably would go together. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. So he was kind of confused at first. But then, you know, actually, you know, you said earlier he, he – uh, enlisted you know so he was a veteran and he was uh concerned about what other veterans would actually think about this kind of show so uh he had it set up to where a group of veterans could come in and see a trailer or an episode and see what they thought of this kind of this kind of show and they they liked it they approved of gave, it gave him approval and therefore he went ahead and took the role yeah because he felt enough of well, he thought enough of his um armed service buddies yeah he had respect for them you know yeah so to get their approval I, and i'm sure that if they didn't like it if they were you know were embarrassed or didn't approve of it he wouldn't have done it right you know and once you know i guess once he understood that basically this is just a everybody making fun of the nazis and all that stuff you know it was a little easier to take for them but, but uh, yeah sure did i thought that was cool but now the character of colonel robert hogan on bob crane it fit him like a glove man oh yeah and it was just amazing. I mean, it was just a hit right from the get-go. Yep. Finishing in the top 10 during the 1965 and 66 season. Yeah, his very first year, top 10 show. Yeah. But the basic concept was that Colonel Hogan and his team believed that the camp was escape-proof so they could continue their secret activities. Right. 
I guess they were had a little bit of underground transport of prisoners, getting them out of Germany. That's what yeah. they were doing. Mm-hmm. Or getting in supplies or whatever they needed to do. Yeah, it was basically they were running secret mission right under their nose. And, yeah. You know, so it, was, it was a pretty cool show. And there was some controversy at the beginning of the show's run as to whether the, this kind of material was appropriate, like Dale talked about. And during this time, this is when Robert Crane met Patricia Olson, who played Hilda on Hogan's Heroes, under the stage name Sigrid Valdis. Sigrid. Sigrid. Now, Bob, he divorced his wife of 20 years. And married Patricia on the set of the show in 1970. Yeah, that cost him a little bit. Yeah, it did. Yeah, he had to basically give the wife and the kids his house. That was out in California. And then he had to pay her $1,700 a month alimony and $600 a month child support. I'm talking about in the 1960s. Yeah. That's a lot of money then. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of money now, but that's a lot, of, a lot <laughs> right. more money then. Right. So he married um, Sigrid on the, on the set. Of the show, and they had a son together, Scotty, the following year, and he also had an adoptive daughter, I guess, through Sigrid's uh, previous relationship. Right. Yeah. But Hogan's Heroes was canceled in 1971, but Bob continued to act, appearing in two Disney films, Super Dad, which had come out in 1974, mm-hmm. and Gus in 1976. Yes. Was that the one about the donkey? Yeah. Yeah. Got a field goal kicking mule or whatever it was. Yeah. He had numerous guest spots on TV shows like Police Woman. Mm, Angie Dixon. Yeah, Ellery Queen, Quincy, and The Love Boat. Yeah, all good shows. Yeah. And he even had his own TV show at one time called The Bob Crane Show. Mm, good name. In 1975. <laughs> but it was canceled by NBC after three months. Yeah, I think it was like 13 episodes or something. Something like that, yeah. But, you know, back then, that's when everybody had a variety show. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody had Yeah, one. Donnie Marie, Sonny and Cher. Uh, Flip Wilson. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good stuff. Huh? Yeah, it was good stuff. And after Hogan's Heroes, he began performing in dinner theater shows mm-hmm. in Scottsdale, Arizona, and other dinner theaters around the country. Right. Yeah, he bought a, uh, he bought the rights to a play, Beginner's Luck, and began doing and running his own uh, dinner theater where he uh, starred and produced it. Yep. And I think it was located in St. Petersburg, Florida. Yeah, I think he did you know several places. He traveled. And it was only like a couple or three months out of the year, but he was earning a six-figure yep. salary doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so making really good money. Yeah, and it wasn't very big productions from what I can understand. I think it was like four or five people in it, counting him. Mm-hmm. So that's probably, you know, going in. He would go in, go into a town, and they would set up and have like a four or five-week run, and then do that, and then move on to the next one. Yeah. That's how it worked. But now, moving just a little bit ahead, this was on a Wednesday, June 28th of 1978. <laughs> And after completing one of the performances, they were signing autographs for fans in a lobby. And this one, Bob Crane returned to his Scottsdale, Arizona apartment with a longtime friend of his by the name of John Carpenter. A little bit of background on this right here. John Carpenter happened to be friends with a former co-star of Hogan's Heroes, Richard Dawson. Right. And they actually, Richard Dawson introduced John Carpenter to Bob Crane. And just so you know, this is definitely not John Carpenter from the Halloween. No, this is <laughs> Halloween, a... but it's John Henry Carpenter. It's a totally different John Carpenter, yeah, yeah. It's not that one. But John Carpenter and Bob Crane, they became pretty good friends. Very good friends. Yeah. And this night, after signing autographs, uh, Bob Crane and John Carpenter headed out on town. Mm-hmm. And this is when Patricia called Bob. This was his wife. 
And according to John Carpenter, they were estranged and they were arguing on the phone. Yes, yeah, right before they got out. And actually, this this same night is uh, they said that the house was was pretty down that night, and uh, the dinner theater there had actually told him that he was going to cut a week off of what they had booked him for, and you'd think they'd be all. You know, kind of pissed off now, but Bob didn't take it like that. He loved it and was looking forward to the week off. Mm-hmm. So him and uh, John was getting ready to go out, and he got a phone call from his wife, and he said it was a pretty big blow-up, whatever it was, that, you know, even neighbors could hear them, you know, yelling at each other over the phone. Yeah. But then after that, they did. They went ahead and went out anyway. Yeah, they went to a local bar and where they had drinks, and they were with a couple women, and they had, had arranged to meet them there. Yeah. Now, just to get a little bit of background on this friendship between John Carpenter and Bob Crane, John Carpenter, he was in big into the the video industry, right? Uh, video cameras and VCRs and things like that. This was cutting edge stuff back then. I mean, it, yeah. only the rich could afford it, right? And he was the way to get it. And that was one of the reasons that Dawson had introduced him because he knew that uh, Crane was uh, into a lot of stuff like that, and uh, John Carpenter could hook him up. Yeah. And what Bob Crane was doing, he would video his sexual escapades with women. Yes. Yeah. He was a, backstory is basically, he was a sex addict. Bob Crane, yeah. Bob Crane, yeah. And he didn't really try to hide it. He was like no bones about it, really. So he had, he would, he had many, many, many women that, you know, he would, uh, he would see and a lot of consensual stuff. And he had, uh, photographs and Polaroids and all kind of stuff. That he, I mean, he had books and books and books of stuff for him and, and women and stuff like that. So yeah. it, was, it was pretty a big shock when it when it happened and the news dropped. But this is you know kind of needs to, know, to make the story make sense. Here. You got these now. these women are like conquests for him. Yes, I and mean they it, were. It basically wasn't anything uh, as far as uh, there was no emotion there at all. Right? Yeah, it was just you know it was this, just sex. Two, yeah, exactly. There you go. It was yeah. just sex. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of it, you know, yeah. he was, and he was, he had been into it so long. I mean, he actually had, you know, dark room equipment and, uh, and stuff where he could blow up his own photos. He could do his own photos. He's always had stuff around where it was either cameras. And then when he got, when he met John, that's when he got him to start doing a lot of videoing mm-hmm. because he got this high tech equipment. Now he could do that plus all the photos and stuff. So it was always, anytime you go to his house, there was all kinds of equipment all over the place, cords running here and cameras. Um, in the bathroom, the little red light would be on because he'd be in there always uh, developing photos. I mean, he was just deep into this. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that was his his little his gimmick there. Yep. But, uh, yeah, they were very deep into this uh, sexual stuff. Yeah. And always wanted to document it and keep it like he could, so he could just go back and watch it over and over and over. Mm-hmm. It was even at one point that uh, Bob had uh, Richard Dawson's son over, yes. Mark. He was 17. 17, showing him his videos. Yeah, he's like, called him in and said, hey, you want, you want to see this? And he rolled a big cart and he had some videos and a big, two or three big books full of photos. Yeah. And said, you know, said he went in there and being 17, I'm sure when he saw it at first, he was like, oh, wow, and saw a lot of stuff he probably hadn't seen before. But he, then he said, you know, after about 10 or 15 minutes, it started getting kind of a little creepy. Yeah. Because, you know, this is a guy that I know and now. I'm seeing a lot of sides I didn't really want to see. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, uh, I can never look at Colonel Hogan again like the same way. You know? But I remember when all this come out and all this this 
bad stuff about Bob Crane come out. I mean, it, it just changed my view of him because I, I love this guy on TV. Right. I mean, he's so wholesome and, and fun. You yeah, know, funny guy. But it just shows you right there, people on TV are nothing like what they are in real life. Well, you know, and, and that's that's a lot of our fault at times too. You know, because yeah. we look at a character and you think that person is the character and they're not. It's just yeah. you know they're portraying. But also, if you think about it, uh, Bob Crane was also like that on, in in the. The, the character too, you know, because he was always uh, trying to get uh, what was her name, Helen? Hilda, or Hilda, you know, trying to get her. You know, he's always talking junk to her, and and basically they were doing stuff then. Yeah, and even the the one here, she was she only was she started to the season two, but he was also had dated the, the original one in season one. Yeah, or I, I say dated, you know what I mean? Yeah, they just hooked up. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's crazy how he was. You know, and, and a lot of people were saying, well, a lot of these women didn't know, but they always insisted that they, they did know and said that many of the photos or almost all the photos, the women seemed to be posing and smiling for the camera. So it's not like he had, had stuff hid from them. So it was pretty much he was up front with everything, and it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Even his his, uh, his wife knew a lot of this stuff. Yeah, she knew about it, and she really, from the things I read, she didn't have a problem with it. No, I mean, what are you going to do? She goes, well, you know, basically, I knew he wasn't going to stop. And it's like, it didn't really mean anything to him. Said Basically, he had even said, you know, well, you know, it didn't mean anything to me as far as, as that goes. And if it, when it was over, if I could just smash a button and they disappear, then that's what I would do. So in her mind, he's basically treating them like toilet paper. And she goes, well, who'd be just toilet paper? Yeah. Which is kind of a weird thing to say. But, I mean, I got, I don't know. But he had no emotion to these women at all. No emotional attachment. Right. It was just sex to him. Yeah. I guess he's kind of like a serial killer, except for killing them and taking and keeping something. He was just that conquest, like you said. Mm-hmm. They were filming it, and then he would go back and watch it later and get the same feeling out of it, I guess. But now, just uh, talk about John Carpenter a little bit, the one that providing all his video equipment. Right. I mean, he was coattailing Bob Crane. Oh, yeah. I mean, because... Bob was pulling in all these women, and John was had these women in his life that he was. He would not get any yeah, other way. Right? Yeah, he wouldn't be able to get them without. without yeah, and said that, you know they, they even had a thing where, you know, they would go into the bar or whatever, and said he wasn't really a big drinker or nothing, but he would go meet women, and they decided they was going to go back and do some stuff or whatever, and go, well, this is my manager, even though he wasn't, and you know he'll be he'll be there, and he would just be filming blah blah blah. So, yes, basically, they knew what what they were in for, and they went back or they didn't. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty big backstory, but that's what's going on here. There was a lot of love shit going on. Yeah. Yes. But yeah, getting back to this Wednesday, June the 28th of okay. 1978, like I said, uh, Bob had gotten an argument with his wife. Right. Yeah. And Bob and John Carpenter, they went out for drinks for these two women that they'd arranged to meet. And around 2 a.m., the four of them went to the Safari Coffee Shop. This is on Scottsdale Road there in Arizona. About a half an hour later, this is when John Carpenter left to pack for his return back to Los Angeles the next morning. Right. Now, back at his hotel, he called Bob Crane one final time. And Bob was allegedly, this supposedly, he was considering ending his lifestyle of heavy partying and even considering ending his friendship with John Carpenter. Now, I wonder if, see, this is kind of weird and nobody knows really what happened here. But that could be possible, and that could be part of the reason the big blow up on the phone, you know, with the wife. Maybe he's like decided, well, maybe that's mm-hmm. enough, you know. I've got 500 million women here. Maybe I just need to sweep up, you know, change change my stripes here. Yeah, even Bob Crane's son even said that 
uh, his dad was considering in his friendship with uh, John Carpenter. Right. But during this last phone call, Bob reportedly told John Carpenter that their friendship was over. Hmm. So it's kind of odd unless something happened that night, which we nobody will ever know. Uh, you know. But anyway, that's just hearsay. So, yep. Yeah. The next day, uh, the, around 2 p.m., Bob Crane's co-star in the dinner theater they were doing their beginner's luck, her name was Victoria Berry, and she would knock on Bob Crane's door. Yeah, he failed to show up for his lunch meeting. Yeah. And I was wondering what was going on, and she went to check on him. But he, Bob was staying at the Winfield Place Apartments, and this was around 2 p.m. on June the 29th, and the front door to his apartment, uh, apartment number was 132A, it was mm-hmm. closed but unlocked. Right. Yeah, well, she knocked on the door and nobody answered me. She reached to grab the thing and it was unlocked. Yeah. And she would enter the apartment and find the entire apartment just dark. Yep. And as she entered the bedroom door, she said, at first she thought there was a girl with long, dark hair. Well, and, it looked like you know, long hair. You know, yeah. Just until, and it said that she had went around the house looking and it didn't see anybody and thought maybe, well, he's not here. And then she was, oh, wait, there's a girl here, so maybe he is here. It looked and like then, a girl laying in the bed. Right. So she went to peep out the window to look on the inside where the pool was. And when she moved the curtains, a little bit of light, then she realized it wasn't hair. It was Bob. Right. And there was a lot of blood around his head, which she yeah. thought was the dark hair. Yeah. And so at first she didn't even know it was Bob just because there's so much blood. And even at first she thought, oh, Bob's got a girl in here. Yeah. Now where's Bob? Right. Yep. But at the time she recognized the blood and it was a very strange feeling for her. Mm. But on closer examination and realizing what exactly she was seeing, uh, she thought the whole wall was covered from one end to the other with blood. There's blood there. There's blood on the ceilings, blood on the wall. It was pretty, pretty gnarly thing. Just stood there numb. And Bob was balled up into a fetal position laying on his right side. Mm-hmm. And he had a, a cord around his neck, which was tied in a bow. Yeah, which is weird. Very weird. And he had been bludgeoned in the head yeah. twice, at least twice. And there was no physical signs of a struggle that had taken place, and the autopsy determined that Bob Crane was asleep, and the deadly blow to the left side of his head was delivered. Yeah, he said he was hit one, I mean, like, uh, pretty severely, and then the second blow crushed his skull. Yeah. And then he said he was wearing nothing but his boxers and his watch. Yeah. Which was odd, because everybody said he never slept with his watch on. Yeah. That was very weird. Yeah. Now, the police investigation had determined that Bob Crane's head was struck by two separate parts of the of a camera tripod. That's what they think. Yeah. Inflicting two separate and deadly wounds. Because a murder weapon was never found. Yeah. Now, Paulette Casita, the first Cotsdale police officer to arrive on the scene, immediately secured the area with crime scene tape. And at approximately 3 p.m. in the afternoon, Scottsdale Police Lieutenant Ron Dean arrived at Bob's apartment and took over the investigation. Yeah. And initially, investigators surmised that the killer was someone that Bob knew. Yeah, well, I guess. Perhaps a person who had left the apartment before the incident and later returned through an unlocked door and perhaps a window and had purposely left the door unlocked or even open. Right. You know, and people said that any time he ever went to bed, he never left the door unlocked, never. No. You know, and then there's speculation that, well, maybe he might have been waiting for a lady to come over and he was just 
laying there for a while, maybe fell asleep, and then left the door unlocked and somebody come in. Yeah. Just trying to figure out a way, a reason why the door would be unlocked, I guess. Speculation. Yep. Now, the Maricopa County Medical Examiner was able to put together a partial chronology of the events on that evening, and sometime during the early hours of Thursday, June 29th, while Bob was sleeping on his right side, the murderer would strike a deadly blow to the left side of his head. Mm Mm-hmm. With some type of heavy, blunt instrument. Yes. And a second, much lighter blow would crush in Bob's skull, likely killing him immediately. And for some unknown reason, the perpetrator likely then tied the electrical cord tightly around his neck. Yeah, because it was after. Mm hmm. That's kind of odd to me. But at the time, Bob was already dead. And before fleeing the scene, the killer would apparently wipe the blood from the murder weapon using the bed sheets mm-hmm. and then pull the sheet up over Bob's head. But there was money found in Bob's wallet, which likely eliminates any kind of uh, robbery for right. as a motive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But one thing me and you heard, too, about the forensic examiner coming in. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, he came in and uh, sort of took over. He even shaved part of Bob's head. Yeah, he said that uh, he walked in and he was looking and got to looking, you know, and this is, you know, the, the scene had just been, you know, cordoned off. And he walks over, he's trying to look at the, the wounds. And so he can get a better look at them. He just pulls out a straight razor out of his pocket and starts shaving the side of his head. Mm-hmm. Right there in the bed. Looks like to me that's just messing up some kind of crime scene. Of course, you know, back then there wasn't no DNA and all that. But still, you got it's still a crime scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a crime scene. It's not like it was, we're guessing it might be a crime scene. It's definitely a damn crime scene. Yeah, they didn't uh, take any forensics or anything. They found some, uh, looked like a white powder on his his pubic area mm-hmm. and on his leg, and they didn't even take that either. No, it said that even that was at the uh, back when they had taken him back to um, the morgue. Yeah, that uh, one of the police officers said told him to make sure you get some a sample of that, and it was a dried and uh, white flaky looking substance, you know, and, and said that uh, thought it might have been semen or something. Yeah, the medical examiner said, "Well, it don't mean that. All that means is shows he's got a piece of ass." Yeah, but he's like, "Well, you need to get a thing," and said that he never did do it. He never did collect a sample of it. Hmm. Pretty shoddy police work. It is. But uh, the Scottsdale, Arizona, at the time, they didn't have a homicide squad. This is true. So yeah. they 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 were they were outmatched in this, man. They didn't even know what to do, I don't think. Right. And it certainly shows here with the medical examiner. Yeah. Maybe he was just getting off because there's some, some famous guy and all this stuff's going on. But, you know, why in the hell else would he come in there and just botch up the scene? I know. But now the investigation at the crime scene brought to light Bob Crane's secret and kinky sex life, Dale. Yeah, just which, dumped it all out in the open. Yeah, which he continued to pursue even while in Scottsdale. Mm-hmm. Just he hadn't had for several years earlier. And he had a, a long-standing fetish of videotaping himself with his female partners, like yep. we said. Mm-hmm. And it was rumors of this kind of activity as well as other things he was doing, you know. Right, it was him and, it was him, him, and him and women and him and women and... Uh, John Carpenter is like, I mean, it was just all kind of stuff. Even group sex stuff? Yeah, everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, approximately 50 pornographic videotapes were found at the Winfield apartment, as well as professional photography equipment in the bathroom for developing and enlarging still shots. Mm-hmm. And a negative strip was found in the enlarger, revealing a woman in both clothed and nude poses. And there was a hefty album of similar pornographic pictures that was missing. From the death scene. Right. I wonder how they knew one was missing. That I don't know. Unless they, they were numbered or something. Unless they were, yeah, all, uh, yeah something like that. It would be the only way I could 
you know, guess. Cataloged or something. Right, because otherwise, who would know about it? Yeah. And several items that the police declined to identify were missing from Bob's little black bag. This was a small, multi-zippered carrier that he always carried around with him. Hmm. And Victoria Berry, this was his co-star, had seen him, uh, had seen it when she first discovered the body, but it later disappeared and was never accounted for. Hmm. Yeah. That was odd. Yeah. Now, the primary suspect in Bob Crane's death was, of course, his longtime friend, uh, John Carpenter. Right. Now, the night before Bob's murder, John Carpenter was sitting with Victoria Berry at the Windmill Dinner Theater, and she would join him during her set breaks. And she claimed that the show ended, and she witnessed uh, Bob and John exit the building together and proceed to Bob's car, where Bob would call out to her to not forget their appointment the next day, whatever that, whatever the appointment was. Right. I guess that's probably the meeting he missed. Probably so. And as uh, Victoria was writing her official statement to the police in Bob's kitchen, this was around 3.15 p.m., the phone rang. Lieutenant Dean, he instructed her to answer the phone, but not to mention anything about Bob Crane. Right. And it was John Carpenter calling from Los Angeles. And the, the police lieutenant took the phone from Barry and identified himself and instructed John that the police were in Bob's apartment investigating an accident, in quotes, an accident. Right. Now, during this phone call, Carpenter told Lieutenant Dean that he'd been out with Crane the previous evening until about 1 a.m., and Carpenter would later change that time to about 2.45 a.m. That's kind of odd. Yeah, and then he would say that he had driven by himself to the airport later that morning for his return flight to Los Angeles. And John Carpenter would call Crane's apartment again around 3.30 p.m., and Lieutenant Dean mentioned in his report that he found it odd that Carpenter never asked any more about the incident and didn't ask him where Bob Crane was. No, nothing. Mm -mm. Weird. Yep. And at the time in 1978, the Scottsdale Police Department, like we said, they didn't have any kind of homicide unit. Right. So they were just blind. Yeah. Now, they did observe some blood smears on the inside of the front door and entranceway, but decided there was no forced entry. And the sliding glass door that led from Bob's apartment to the swimming pool was discovered unlocked. Hmm. Yeah. Now, later that day, the police interviewed some of Bob Crane's colleagues and friends, discovering Bob Crane was personable, charming, and was just fun to be around. He had made enemies, and there were a few fellow actors who had argued with Bob in Texas and later had sworn vengeance. And given Crane's reputation with the ladies, there were numerous angry husbands and boyfriends. Oh, I'm sure there's a bunch of them. Yeah, you know if he's videotaping women, him and his escapades with women, there had to be some jealous husbands and boyfriends. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Or even some mad women. Right. But John Carpenter remained the prime suspect. Right. And some who had been interviewed claimed that Crane's relationship to Carpenter had begun to show some strain. Yeah, well, I think that's where the rumors come from you were talking about earlier when maybe they were getting ready to bust up. Or mm-hmm. But there was also a, the possibility of a loan that uh, Bob Crane had made to John Carpenter at one time. Yeah, which is more speculation, but it's a uh, hearsay that he had let him uh, borrow $15,000. He hadn't got it back. Yeah, and Bob may have been demanding some payment or, or something. Money, yeah. 
and perhaps even more compelling, the police discovered a small blood smear on the passenger side door of John Carpenter's rented vehicle. Right. Well, they, when they uh, when they talked to him, you know, he said that he had drove himself back. They went to look for his rental car. They were trying to find it. And they couldn't find it. Come to find out that uh, the rental place had sent it to uh, an automobile uh, automobile. Uh, had sent it to get fixed. Had, had an electrical kind of, problem or something. Yeah, there you go. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they found it there and impounded it and took it back. And then that's when they started searching over after they searched the final car. Yeah, they found a little bit of dried blood on the interior. Yes. Yeah. Which is kind of odd. Mm-hmm. And that's when they ordered the car towed to the DPI compound there in Phoenix. Right. And the car was examined and photographed by criminologist Bruce Bergstrom of the Arizona Department of Public Safety. And Bergstrom's job was to find and process any blood or tissue evidence found in the car. And it was there the investigation of the phase began to fall apart before it even got started, Dale. Hmm. The blood that was found in John Carpenter's car was tested and determined to be type B blood. Yes. Which was coincidentally the same blood type as Bob Crane. It's also rare. Yeah, Yeah, so... Um, yeah, back then, several I, blood smears, yeah. Yeah, but back then, that's probably all they could test was blood type. Yeah, just types. Yeah. But also, if it's got a rare, you know, it's, don't look good. It narrows down the field just a little bit more. Yeah, and Carpenter's blood was not that type. Yeah. So this was all before DNA testing, so. Yeah. yeah. Now, we're going to move a little bit ahead. We're going up to 1992, Dale. And in 1992, they was determined that Tissue collected in John Carpenter's rental car matched that found at the crime scene. And investigators reopened the murder case. And additionally, investigators determined that Bob Crane had been beaten with a second tripod that was not found at the murder scene, but was featured in many of the videos. Hmm. So I guess they had to watch the videos to see what was, was missing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the county attorney's office had determined there was enough evidence to try John Carpenter for the death of Bob Crane, so the case went to court in 1994. But following a two-month-long trial, John Carpenter was acquitted, and he would die four years later, totally maintaining his innocence of Bob Crane's death. Yeah, when, you know, they in 1990, you know, back then when they was going through some stuff and started checking out a bunch of stuff in DNA and this kind of thing. There was an actual, they had a photograph of, a, of like a, what showed to be a piece of brain matter that was in the car. Mm-hmm. But the actual temp, the actual sample was either never collected or had been lost. All they had of was the picture of <laughs> a picture of a sample. Yeah. So, you know, that wasn't going to go far, especially if he had a good lawyer. So they just kind of laughed him out about that. So, it was, you know, in the 92s when he was arrested and charged with the murder and in 94, like I said, it was when the trial. But they didn't really have anything. So everything was uh everything they had was basically circumstantial. Yeah, and even when they tried to run the DNA, I don't think they got much farther with that. Mm-hmm. Now, in November of 2016, the Maricopa County Attorney's Office permitted Phoenix Television reporter John Hook to submit the 1978 blood samples from John Carpenter's rental car for testing, and using a much more advanced DNA technique than the one in 1990. Two sequences were identified, one from an unknown male, and the other, it was too graded to reach any kind of conclusion. And See, that's weird to me. Yeah. And why did it, Why does it take that much longer, and why was it a, a television reporter to be the one to submit these books? That's just weird, isn't it? 
Now, the testing consumed all the remaining DNA from the rental car, making further tests impossible. Right. Now, Hook's investigation turned up two blood vials and there were samples from Crane and Carpenter located in evidence storage at the Maricopa County's Attorney's Office. And John Carpenter voluntarily gave a sample to the Scottsdale police when he was questioned in 1978. Right. Now, Bob Crane's blood vial was recovered during his autopsy the day after the murder. Both were used as comparison samples for Hook's DNA test on the bloodstains found in John Carpenter's rental car. Right. And they were performed by Bode Cellmark Labs. Mm-hmm. But um, this one thing that got me to the Bob Crane's estate all went to his wife. Yes. Because they were still married. Yeah. They were still married, but they were estranged. They, they were estranged, yes. Uh, his kids or nobody like that got any of his estate at all. That was um, pretty sad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Bob Crane's life and murder were the subject of a 2002 feature film uh, entitled Auto Focus. Yes. And it starred Greg Kinnear as Bob Crane. Yeah, no, one of his sons does not like that movie. No. The youngest one. Yeah. This was the one he had with uh, his latest wife, Sigrid. Right. You know, and just to say, you know, how how big he was at the time of his death, you know, his funeral, I had estimated like 200 family members came, and including John Austin, you know, from uh, Adam's family, Patty Duke, Carol O'Connor, you know, who was Archie Bunker. A lot of big names came in, and, you know, a lot of his, uh, the pallbearers included the co-stars from, uh, from Hogan's, Hogan's Heroes. A lot of producers, a cool. lot of lot of big wheels were at his funeral, man. Yeah. Yeah. Which is pretty pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah. Bob Crane was a great guy, but he had his, um, he had a, and he had an addiction, no doubt about it. Yes, he did. But he wasn't hurting nobody. So I just wonder, makes me wonder, you know, there toward the end, if he was ready to uh, Call it quits. give it up. You know, and they had, he was like, this was only like two weeks before his 50th birthday. Yeah. Mm, it's just sad. Yeah. It had been reported, too, that I heard on something that Bob had visited a, a psychic or a palm reader or something. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, he, she said he had a short lifeline right. in, his, in his palm. and. Uh, he said, well, I've lived a long life, or I just want to live to be 50. Yeah, I'll just be happy if I make it to 50. Yeah, and this was in his 49. Yep. But he didn't quite make it. Right. You know, and then later, you know, wherever he was buried, they, they uh, secretly had him moved. Yeah, he was in, he was interred in the Oakwood Memorial Park in Chatsworth, California. Mm-hmm. And then Patricia Olson later had his remains relocated to Westwood Village Memorial Park in Westwood. And then after her death in 2007, she was buried right beside him under her stage name, Sigurd Valdez. And if you look on the stone at the top of it, it says Hogan and Hilda together forever. That's crazy, man. And it's a picture of them from Hogan's Heroes. Even the picture on his gravestone is, is in his Hogan garden. Yeah. Hogan and Hilda. Yep. Wow. That is crazy. But I was a big Robert Crane fan back in the day. Yep. And it's just, yeah. Neat stuff. It is. But it's still unsolved to this day, still man. Still unsolved, don't know. It's kind of, I don't know. I don't. I, I find it kind of hard to believe that, that his, you know, it's one of his best friends would be the one to kill him. Yeah. But the only thing that kind of makes me wonder is the blood in the car. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And they never did find what they thought. You know, the, the reason they, and, you know, he was talking about the, um, the tripod. 
said basically they took the, the tripod that was like the other one and laid it down on the smears on the blood sheet and it kind of matched up yeah. to where it would have been the same thing. But they never found the one that was so, the so-called uh, murder weapon. Yeah. So. It makes you wonder, don't it? It does. And I guess it's possible, you know. Hell, like he said, why would I kill my That's the goose that played the golden egg, you know. Yeah. If it was true that he wanted his money, and that's that's another. None of this yet even is proved that he owed him money. Nobody knows. If he did owe him money or if he was like, getting we're, we're done, then, you know, I can see you know, somebody getting pissed off and doing some stuff like that. But other than that, it just didn't make any sense. No. But that is the murder of Bob Crane. Mm. Robert Hogan. Colonel Hogan. Colonel Hogan. Yeah. All right, Dale. Pretty wild story, though. We're going to get out of here, bud. All right, let's roll. We want everyone to be safe. Please be careful and always be aware of your surroundings. Because the next episode could be about you. This is The Crack House House Chronicles. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.